Hey there, and welcome to Therapy Talks. I'm your host, Anya Malda. I'm a licensed social worker and owner of Soulful Balance Therapy in Burlington, Ontario. Therapy Talks is a podcast dedicated to helping you find balance with your mental health, providing you with tips and tricks to manage some of life's challenges, and supporting you on your journey of mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. It will address all things mental health related, and my sincere hope is that through education and open discussion, we'll be helping to break down the stigma related to mental health issues one episode at a time. So, if you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, I'd be grateful if you left a review, comment, or question. Okay, enough chit-chat. Let's do this. You're listening to Episode 1 of Therapy Talks, debunking the myths and misconceptions around mental health issues. Do you or perhaps someone you know struggle with mental health issues? I'd be willing to bet that each of you listening right now would be able to name at least one person in your life who struggles with any number of mental health issues, whether it's anxiety, depression, panic attacks, or perhaps it's more of a situational thing, a moment or period in life where you or someone you know struggled with stress, feelings of overwhelm, relationship issues, or maybe grief. The list here could go on. My point is, We've all experienced challenges in life that have impacted our mental health on some level. So if this is the case, why is it all so hard to talk about? Mental health is important because it affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. Mental health is important at every stage of life, from childhood, adolescence, through adulthood. If this is the case, then why is it so difficult to talk about? Why do we so often struggle to admit that we're having difficulty coping or might be struggling with some aspect of our lives? In today's episode, you'll be listening to an interview with two of my dearest friends and colleagues, Rebecca Decha and Valrup Atwal. Both have their bachelor's and master's of social work degrees and have been working the front lines in the field of mental health services for many years. They are extremely knowledgeable and skilled in what they do, and that's exactly why I've asked them to join me in a conversation geared towards debunking the myths and misconceptions surrounding mental health issues. Join me as we open up and speak candidly about all things mental health, what it's like to ask for help, and how to best go about doing so. Thank you all so much for taking the time to tune in. And just a reminder, please press pause and take the time to leave a review. This is a huge help to us as we continue to produce this show, put in tons of time and energy into providing you with the best guests, relevant topics, and information you find most helpful. Without further ado, let's talk mental health. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. Here with me are Rebecca Decha and Balrup Atwal. Both are social workers, um, both working within the mental health field, more of the hospital medical side of things. Um, However, I've asked them to join me to talk about sort of mental health and why it's important. Um, So yeah, let's begin. Without further ado, if you ladies wouldn't mind introducing yourselves. Hi, this is Balrup. 
Hi, it's Rebecca, and you will call me Bex throughout this podcast, no doubt. Definitely, and Balroop Roops. I mean, that's just kind of how it rolls. I've known them for years, so that's also why I've asked them to join. I trust their expertise, and I know that they're extremely knowledgeable. Um, maybe, guys, if you don't mind sharing with our audience where you work, and maybe not where, where, but, you know, the field that you work in, and the type of work that you're exposed to as a professional, as a clinician. I work as an inpatient social worker um, in a hospital, working largely with a medicine group. Um, so we see a variety of different diagnoses, um, some related to surgery, um, some mental health, some just medicine and medical diagnoses. So a pretty broad spectrum of yeah. patients that you would see. And what about yourself, Bex? I recently made a transition from the inpatient world to community care, specifically working with seniors with um, Alzheimer's related dementias. But prior to that, I was in the hospital system for the majority of my career working on a variety of units in acute care. So general medicine, similar to ROOPS, but also more recently in the emergency department where I worked a lot more with clients with various mental health issues and substance use. Um, and different life crises, so have a little breadth of experience there, but mm-hmm. yeah, so definitely sort of the medical medical end of mental health, I'd say. Um, and I think out of the three of us, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm the only one that's had experience doing sort of the in-office therapist type of role at this point. Not to say that that's not what you're doing in the hospital; you're just doing it in a different setting. It's at the bedside and with way more distractions. (laughs) Um, So ladies, if I, if I say mental health, you know, just the term mental health, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you guys? Okay. One of you has got to go first. (laughs) So I guess what I, when I think about is um, just a concern about what the wait times are like for folks that are ready to see a clinician and, resolve some concerns that they have going on in their life and and seek support um, for whatever mental health issue that they're encountering Mm -hmm. and and just what that wait time looks like is it six months is it a year um that's that's Mm -hmm. a long time to have to wait for support and you know is there anyone able to support them in the interim until they get linked with that specialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oftentimes, I mean, for me, I don't mean to jump in here guys, but, um, for me in that, with respect to that, I often think if I think about myself, if, if I'm thinking about my mental health and I'm thinking about my level of stress or my level of anxiety, I'm reaching out at a time when things aren't good, right? I, my fault, my bad, but totally I admit to usually it's not until I can't manage on my own anymore and what I'm doing isn't working, that's when I reach out, right? So absolutely, Roops, if you're faced with significant wait times, if I go to my family doctor and my family doctor says, okay, well, sure, no problem. We've got a social worker on staff here. Feel free to meet with that person. And I find out there's like, you know, anywhere from six weeks to three months wait. Well, you know what? The chances of me actually seeing that person, pretty slim, right? Like I'm I'm more likely to just kind of plod through and things aren't going to be great, but I'm going to plod through and, and probably by the time my name comes up on that wait list, things have maybe settled a little or I'm just learning to cope with the chaos, you know? Mm-hmm. What about you, Bex? 
I mean, I, I mentioned before in passing that I, the more I grow professionally and also, you know, mature in life and see different things, <laughs> I realize that people really, you know, and I'm not the first person who's ever said this, it's not a unique idea, but I believe that mental health exists on a continuum. And like you said, unfortunately, a lot of times I'm interacting with people in a professional capacity when things have reached kind of an unbearable point but um, there's many points along their life and their trajectory with their mental health at which um, there could have been different opportunities or um, you know moments where things could have been a bit different and how really you know mental wellness is not a fixed immovable destination that once you achieve it it stays the same nor mm -hmm. is what we consider mental illness a state of you know being unwell and in crisis that once you reach, you will always be mentally ill. But I so think people true. do move back and forth throughout their life. And, you know, mental health to me also involves a bit of work to maintain or to improve or to move yourself in the direction um, that feels better for you. So I think that's a really good point. I think even, I mean, for me, I won't lie. Sometimes when I hear the term mental health, I automatically think of, I admit it, I think of the stigma associated with it, right? And I think, I automatically think sort of like, okay, something's wrong, right? But you make a really good point that mental health is something that we all, regardless of how well functioning and, you know, upstanding citizens we might be, we all have a responsibility to work on our mental health and make those improvements. And um, I think that's, to my mind, I feel like that's like part of, growing as an individual too you may right? not even realize that consciously you are working on your mental health when you yeah. take on meditation um or when you decide to book a vacation when mm -hmm. you decide mm -hmm. to spend oh, some time with close friends just to hang out and connect with each other yeah all of those yeah. things could be things to contribute to your mental wellness oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean i i joke all the time that my vacation is like my mental health check-in, <laughs> I'm taking that time, I'm, I'm away from it all, right? For sure. And I think you're right. I think we do all of these things without maybe even consciously realizing that what we're doing is working on our mental health, for sure. So if that's, sorry, were you going to say something, Bex? I was going to say, similarly, unfortunately, I feel like sometimes it's easy to slip out of those wellness practices just as unconsciously. So mm -hmm. if you are, um, you know, feeling okay on top of your game and doing all your self-care and practice, excellent. But then sometimes it's kind of hard when things slip to pinpoint it or to slow it down. Or if you're experiencing some changes in your mental wellness and you're withdrawing from some of those activities, it can be unfortunately a bit of a slippery slope. And if you have like other obligations that prevent you from accessing or doing those things that we take for granted, mm -hmm. um, it, it might be harder to maintain and, and more difficult for some than others. Totally. Yeah, I think your economic status is a contributing factor. If you are not able to take the time off work to see the social worker between the hours of nine to five, if that's who you've been connected with, then, you know, and it's not sustainable for you to take that time off work, you're much less likely to reach out and follow through totally I know we'll, I know we'll touch on this later in the conversation as well but I mean it, it relates to the whole concept of well that's great I'd love to see a social worker but I don't have benefits and I can't afford it right I'd love to see a therapist but this is my situation right um and like definitely probably probably a podcast 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 episode for future 
is one around what are some great options for self-care, like really practical, you know, inexpensive ways that you can look after yourself, right? To avoid, yeah, avoid things like burnout, avoid things like, yeah, just stress-related overwhelm and ending up in that not-so-great place, right? And if you do find yourself down that slippery slope, as Bex was saying, you know, what are some strategies you can use to help yourself mm-hmm. kind of get out of it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So why do you think it's so difficult for people to reach out and actually ask for professional help? So I know we all, like to some degree, we all have friends or we have family. Oftentimes when things aren't going well, we've got that one person that we know we can kind of count on and, you know, um, debrief with or chat with, bounce things off of. But when it comes to seeking professional help, why do you feel that like, why is it so hard for people to reach out and, and ask for help? Um, I mean, I know we're going to address or talk about access and services a bit more later on or in mm-hmm. future, but separate from that entirely, I, I do think one of the key issues is the ongoing stigma um, that people are afraid of coming forward or self-identifying, have negative impressions about what it means to be a person with mental health issues mm-hmm. and not know who to turn to accordingly, not feeling comfortable or able to disclose. And for a while I thought I was existing in an echo chamber of really tolerant, like-minded folk. You know, you know, I talk to social workers, I hang out with social workers, we're all pretty mental mm-hmm. health aware. And same with my group of friends, but then I had a girlfriend come forward who'd been having some issues for quite some time, and she just kept saying how scared she was of being crazy. Mm-hmm. And she kept using the mm-hmm. word crazy, and she didn't want to be crazy. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I really struggled with how best to support her in the moment, because on the one hand, I really wanted to validate her, her worry and her concern, but the, you know, the advocate in me really wanted to correct her use of the term and try and be like, what would be so bad if you had a mental health issue yeah. other than the distress it's currently causing you? And I really struggled because I was shocked that it took her so long to come forward to me, like her very close friend of many years, um, with her experience in, in that setting. And it really showed to me in the moment that stigma is alive and well, mm-hmm, um, even for people in my immediate circle. So. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly why we're doing this, ladies. Yes. <laughs> I think people also have this misunderstanding that seeking help for mental health is some form of weakness. Yeah. That they are yeah. not living up to a personal standard or expectation and for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's unfortunate because you wouldn't um, maybe even second guess visiting the doctor if you've broken your arm. But there is a lot of second guessing and a lot of internal dialogue about whether or not to seek support when you're having a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and mental health crisis can be anything from like feeling completely overwhelmed or struggling with grief or maybe, maybe feeling like just completely unsure of what to do next in your life, right? All the way to something really severe and, and something requiring, you know, a medical diagnosis, right? Um, and interventions that way. Um, I, I think for me in my private practice, a big part of what I see and hear is exactly that. This notion of, I should have my crap together. I should know what I'm doing, right? And this is definitely a sign of weakness or I feel like I'm failing in some way. There's like there, there's this ownership of, I'm not doing life well, right? And and I think the other piece too that we can't overlook is just the the amount of um, familial and cultural impact that 
sort of plays into people's decision making around reaching out for help, right? Um, when I explain to people that whatever we talk about in session isn't going to go anywhere, it's between you know myself and them. Most adults already know that, but the younger people I see, their twenties, late teens, you know, the sense of relief that typically washes over them, you know, is is immense, right? And and um, I think that that's part of it, you know, is you kind of keep your your stuff to yourself. Your family business is family business. It's mm-hmm. not you know, for the, the whole world to hear when really that's, that's not what therapy's about at all, you know? And when you think of the cultural and community component, I think if people are not educated about mental health and the supports available and what the goals are and what the strategies are, people are not going to be as open um, with their own family members when they are talking about struggling with a mental mm-hmm. health issue. It is just, oh, we don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you say, it, it's not something that needs to go outside the four walls of the home. It's something that can be managed within the home. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, everything is going great in your life. Why would you be struggling with a mental health yeah. issue? There's that kind of, I, there, so for true. some reason, there's kind of some, um, those two things are connected that you cannot be doing well in life and have a mental health Mm -hmm. issue. Those just shouldn't go hand in hand. It's amazing the number of people I will see in session who say, but I have everything that I could possibly want, right? I've got my good job, I've got my family, I've got a great partner. I have no reason to be feeling down, right? I don't understand why I'm feeling this way. And like, just understanding that perhaps how you're feeling isn't necessarily a reflection of how you're doing in life and how you're functioning in your day to day, right? Like your life decisions per se aren't necessarily a reflection of your mental health, you know? And then that there's this, this whole conversation streams into this other topic of like, um, social media, right. And how social media impacts our sense of self. And I mean, it's, it's a world of perfectly curated beauty and we're all living the perfect life. And, very few people, although that's slowly shifting. I feel that's evolving. I think it that is. there is more dialogue online. And and from athletes, celebrities, yes. folks that yes. have a very large following who are coming forward with their Just own life so experiences. powerful, right? So powerful. But yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to the untrained eye or maturity level, right? For young people, let's say it's, you see this stuff on Instagram and Snapchat or wherever. And it's, yeah, I think it makes you feel like you've got to have it all together. And, you know, behind the scenes, the reality is, is that most people at some point in their life will suffer from either some kind of, of overwhelm, some kind of mental health issue, right? Whether it's situational situational depression, situational anxiety, whatever, or something a little more um, medical and intense, right? I, I'm a firm believer, and I think the more I see, the more work that I do, the more convinced I am that each and every person would benefit at one point in their life or another from connecting with a therapist and working through whatever they might be faced with at that point. 
That's my personal belief. I could be a bit biased, though. <laughs> I, I used to, to say that, and I would talk the talk, and I, it took me ages to walk the walk. It was, it was a funny experience of mine because people used to ask, well, you're obviously in this profession. Like, have you been on the other side of the table, the other mm-hmm. side of the couch? You know, mm-hmm. and and I hadn't up until a certain point in my career, and but I, I preached it as very important for everybody else. I thought it was very essential. <laughs> you need to look after your health. Mm-hmm. It'd be so important for you to talk to somebody, and and it didn't strike me until I was having um, my own situational crisis at work, and I it took me a while to realize that I, it was true that I also needed to accept help, and I didn't realize how I had internalized some of what I supposed to be like the stigma around mm-hmm. pursuing assistance totally. because in my mind or at that time, you know, I wasn't as bad or my issues weren't as important um, until they started to affect me professionally and then personally at home. And then it took a lot of time to realize that it, you know, I, I can be a professional who helps people, but I can also be a person who is deserving and needs to accept yeah. help as well. And I was fortunate enough to be in a position to find that for myself but it was it was very eye opening for me to realize that, you know, like I I am just I'm no different than the people that I work with. I am like susceptible mm-hmm. to the same stresses, to the same potential issues, mm-hmm. and I you know I should really put my money where my mouth is when it comes to the advice that I give. Yeah, so. not just do as I say, not yes. as I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. I think, um, I I I have no no reservations about telling my clients that come through the door. You know what? I've been there. I've been where you're sitting. I know how nerve-wracking it feels, right? I know it takes a lot of courage to make that initial phone call and reach out and ask for help, right? And so I I don't hesitate to commend them in doing so and letting them know that hey, it's okay. I've been there. I kind of get where you're feeling, which you're at where you're feeling, you know, um, nervous or anxious about this whole process and like just trust that it's okay and for most people I think it's probably one of the best decisions they'll make on the whole thoughts about that Roops? she's like in contemplation <laughs> <laughs> so okay maybe maybe that's a good point to um, transition into like what's the difference between I know you know, we know this, so let's share with our audience, right? What's the difference between a social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist? Like, who do I turn to when I'm needing help, right? How do I, how do I know if I need a psychiatrist or if I need just, you know, I don't know. What's the difference? Psychiatrist, ladies? I mean, you know, I, I'm a social worker, but I've, I'm, been practicing primarily from the medical model and perspective. So, mm-hmm. you know, in all my schooling, uh, the DSM was also like my Bible. And and, mm-hmm. and so I understand that that's not the be all end all, but it is really important for, you know, people who required or would benefit from it obtaining what approximates an accurate diagnosis. And in the case of psychiatry, they are able to assess and diagnose people with various mental health issues. But also um, able to prescribe pharmacotherapy treatment to address some of them when it's appropriate in conjunction with prescriptions for you know talk therapy or counseling as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. so you know psychiatry i think is a very important cornerstone in mental health treatment that's available not necessary for everyone necessarily and certainly not the be all end all Um, agreed but uh, you know a very important key especially in say 
moments of um, crises and especially mm -hmm. involving like hospital visits, people at risk um, of suicide or significant outcomes. Um, those with uh, diagnoses like schizophrenia or along that spectrum of, um, sorry, of those kinds of disorders, I think benefit from psychiatric assessment and involvement, at least initially, to kind of um, set the tone, get the ball like rolling, and with like a working diagnosis that can help guide treatment. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the label with which somebody should be henceforth judged and approached for all their life. I understand what that means to have something put on a chart that is immovable, mm -hmm. but I think it, in some cases it does help guide appropriate treatment for people who are totally. experiencing some more significant issues. Yeah. And when they are coming to the hospital, um, oftentimes they're seeing both. They're seeing the social worker and the psychiatrist, and then depending on the assessments, that's kind of, mm -hmm. that will trigger future treatments and supports and services in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like... Just to kind of summarize, it's like psychiatry is there to make those um, official mental health diagnoses when appropriate. Um, and they also are the ones, I'd say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd say that they're the ones that have access to the pharmaceuticals when and if it's needed, right? Um, outside of going to your family doctor. This would be somebody who specializes in the mental health realm and, um, yeah, uses the dsm four as their Bible kind of thing. And there are social workers like yourself who specialize in counseling and different modalities of counseling, solution mm -hmm. focused therapy, CBT, um, supportive counseling. So they also offer different yeah. modalities and treatment. Yeah, so social workers are more based on like the talk therapy or play therapy or um, those types of modalities as opposed to necessarily like we aren't able to, to officially diagnose. We aren't able to prescribe medications, right? Um, and I always, I always sort of think is think of social worker therapists as those people that are there for you, the long haul, right? Like they're the person that you would see most often and most regularly. Because let's be honest, you go in to see the psychiatrist, and unless it's like your official first assessment, those touching base points, it's usually a pretty quick visit, and it's typically like once a month, maybe or maybe a little more often if if you were in a state of crisis, but you know, it's not somebody that you can just like, oh, I really need to schedule an appointment and get in like, you know, today, right? Um, and then psychologists, psychologists are able to diagnose mental health illnesses based on uh, the dsm four as well. Um, but they, of course, aren't able to prescribe um, medications. Again, they do, I think, do some work along the lines of like cognitive behavioral therapy and use um, those different theoretical approaches to their work with clients as well. Um, psychologists obviously run more expensive than therapists, um, so that's always a factor for people as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? Like personal preference as to whether or not somebody would go for a therapist, social worker versus psychologist? I think it would have to do with their mental health crisis mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. where they are at within that crisis might be a determining factor in terms of who they seek out to help support them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think also um, when you have the ability, finding the right fit is really key in terms oh, of yeah. personality and approach and generally making that therapeutic relationship. Um, I, I often advise or at least inform the people I work with that it, it 
it's not a one-off. You, you're not necessarily going to connect with each and every mm-hmm. practitioner you come across. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, trying out a couple different people until you get the right fit. However, I totally recognize that doesn't work for everyone. And so sometimes the determining factor might be what you're covered for, what's covered by OHIP, what's not, yeah. what or you your can afford, benefits. your benefits, yeah. and, and where things might be located. So some, some plans might cover psychologists only and might not recognize social workers or psychotherapists, especially as a newly regulated professional. Yeah. So I, I think your access depends on a number of things, um, not just, you know, what you'd be interested in, but I think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you have the flexibility, fit is so essential. Oh man, I think I that's key. Like I, I love nothing more than when I get an email or a phone call from a potential client and they say to me, hey, um, I'm just in the middle of um, interviewing social workers or therapists. And I'm like, I love it. I love it. Do exactly what you need to do because you may not... You may not like my personality. You may not like my approach. You may not like how laid back I am. Like you may need something very different than what I have to offer, and that's totally okay. And I would but not everyone knows that it's totally okay, and that's yeah. the unfortunate piece. I think yeah. is that they may not Took receive that education that you need to maybe yeah. visit and meet a few different therapists and find that fit and that yeah. Even have phone therapy. calls, right? Yes. Like if you if you don't want to like do the actual legwork of going out to them, fine, um, but so vital. I, I actually make a point of telling my clients that, right? Like we do a free 20 to 30 minute telephone conversation as an intake between myself and a potential client. And I say during that conversation, like you need to decide whether or not you feel like I'm a good fit. You don't need to make a decision at this moment. And please know that no offense taken. Like it's it's all good. I would rather somebody you know, interview me and I never hear from them again, but I'm trusting that they've interviewed somebody else and made a connection and that that connection has been really positive because we all know, like I, how many of us have not heard, heard stories from people about going to see a therapist and, Oh, it was terrible. I'll never do that again. And they're completely turned off. Yeah. From the whole concept. Right. And it's just really unfortunate because it's not a reflection of the profession or the service as a whole, it's really just, you didn't make a good fit and that's okay. Try somebody else. I think um, the, that flexibility is more evident in like the pay for fields, like the therapy with mm-hmm. social workers and psychologists or psychotherapists. I think it's a lot more different for, difficult for clients who have clashes or disagreements or mm-hmm. would like to mm-hmm. divorce, quote unquote, their psychiatrist. Um, but yeah. like groups mentioned earlier, um, there isn't necessarily that flexibility or availability in a system which is very uh, underfunded and understaffed to address the need yeah. to necessarily like move between providers. So, and you know, it, at some times it also becomes an important part of therapy or of the work you do together to actually address the interpersonal challenges that come up during your sessions or while you're working through mm-hmm. some things because sometimes therapy itself can be a model and a safe place to practice for your interpersonal relationships outside of therapy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying necessarily like the second that you don't like your therapist or you get into a disagreement, <laughs> yeah. you can hike out and find a new one. Sometimes it's actually helpful to work through your it's issues part of the in process. session. Yeah. 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 I, I will always tell my clients too, right? There are going to be times where you may not like me cause I'm going to, I'm going to push you. I'm going to make you work. Therapy is not just like this fun stroll in the park always, right? There's hard parts to it and just know that, 
it's okay. Like you will get through that component, you'll get through that piece and we can move forward from it, right? For sure. So, I, I mean, from here, we've talked a little bit about, and we know, of course, what the benefits of counseling are. Um, but for people that might be listening, how are we going to convince them that this is something worthwhile? It can be something that's empowering to speak to someone who is neutral. Not, mm-hmm. You know, your friends and family are can provide a great ear to listen and, and provide support, but um, sometimes you need a bit more than that and you need um, a practitioner that's neutral to provide an opportunity to reframe things and just speaking to someone that's outside of your regular circle it can be cathartic and, mm-hmm. and freeing mm-hmm. yeah I think giving giving somebody an opportunity right to um, have sort of their own person a safe person whom they know that they can open up to completely free of judgment free of you know anything right mm-hmm. it's this is their space and their time um, and to possibly have have like a third unbiased opinion or um, perspective on things and right? offer evidence-based strategies yeah and coping mechanisms yeah um, oh yeah increase your coping ability increase your your toolbox right the when life is happening and things around you feel like they're starting to spiral or spin you're sort of you're learning new tips and tricks and techniques to take with you that are going to last you a lifetime right that you can employ at any time and help carry you through some of those more challenging times what about you bex any thoughts about like i'm busy right my life is full my schedule is full why am i going to take an hour out of my day to connect with somebody about you know stuff that is usually like really tiring to even just talk about right i it makes me think about uh, earlier in the conversation when we were talking about how oftentimes we're not working on our mental health until there's an issue with our mental health and you know when possible doing that work when things seem to be quote unquote okay can still be important in terms of maintaining a balance and maintaining a good healthcare practice and that being said if it's not possible I, I think taking the time out to address it in the moment though you might be busy and though it might be difficult and challenging to you really helps with your future potential to address these issues independently therapy doesn't have to be something you are committed to lifelong it could be something that helps you with your growth in this moment helps you overcome this current hurdle mm-hmm. and helps better prepare you for what comes down the line um, and I agree with the the safe space as well. I think that's so essential that, you know, some people don't have that safety net of family and friends who are understanding or who they would feel comfortable approaching. And I think when possible, having a professional that you can turn to, um, it can be quite relieving um, and might be the first opportunity in some cases for some people's lives in which they've felt comfortable sharing about themselves and don't fear repercussions of being their most true self so I think mm-hmm. I agree with Roops it can be quite freeing and really empowering to you know be honest and mm-hmm. to have that opportunity with a, a person who's supportive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think that's so honestly I think people just breathe this sigh of relief when I tell them you know what, this doesn't mean that you're connected to me at the hip for the rest of your life. Like, it's not my goal is to get you in here and out 
as quickly as we can, right? So that you can get on with living your life and doing your thing and doing so in a healthier way, right? In a way that is fulfilling to you and in a way that makes you feel empowered and strong about moving forward. Um, and knowing that life happens, right? And you know what, there are peaks and there are valleys and there are gonna be times maybe, you know, we, we finish seeing each other and six months, a year, five years from then, something happens in your life and things are thrown upside down again and you feel like you wanna reconnect and touch base. That's okay, you know, totally situational. It's, a, it's all good, that's what we're here for. When I think of the benefits of seeking help, whatever that looks like for the person, I also think, you know, greater than the individual. I, I, I don't know why my, my mind immediately goes to societal outcomes as well, because I feel as though if mental health services and supports and preventative and um, health promotion activities were promote, like promoted more and funded better, then you would see like this increase down the line. It's like such a good investment in a society's outcomes yes. in terms of missed work opportunity, the oh. um, opportunity cost of lost labor for people taking time out or not being satisfied or the uh, mortality and morbidity rates associated with mental health issues are so high. Um, and same with our physical health issues. It's Sometimes it's almost a chicken or the egg in terms of um, people with chronic health issues who also simultaneously have chronic mental health issues um, as a result or which contributed and I feel as though there's so much opportunity for prevention and health promotion to address those other outcomes that matter more to say like employers or government who look for numbers that they can address and fix and help get reelected or make the money. Mm -hmm. But if we can twist that towards the benefit of the good of the citizens, then I, I think it's an important point to mention as well that investing in mental health is investing in a healthier society on whole who's more productive and able to participate if that is what's really valued, unfortunately. So true. Yeah. Uh -huh. So true. And I mean, that, that in and of itself, we could have like an hour-long conversation, podcast discussion <laughs> just about that, right? Mm -hmm. So again, for our lovely listeners, if we have people who are, are listening to us, um, they've tuned in and you know, they're thinking, oh man, my friend so-and-so or my family member, you know, such-and-such, such, they could really use therapy and could really benefit from talking to somebody. I mean, what are some suggestions that we can give them? How would they go about, how would they go about finding a therapist? What would you recommend in terms of steps? It really depends on the individual's situation. I, you know, usually a good first step for most is if you have a family doctor approaching them, mm -hmm. perhaps mm -hmm. they have, um, local resources they're able to talk you through it in the moment if you have that relationship not everyone has a gp i know there's a shortage of those two in oh, ontario yeah, so true uh, back to our resource issues but um, <laughs> um failing that and you know the internet is a mixed blessing but i feel like it's a great place to look for the kinds of support that you need online forums might give you some direction yeah. of reaching out with like-minded people going through something similar or you know websites like psychology today where you can find and browse through like tons of different therapists um, look for fit, look for people with a background that seems to support or address the issues you want to. I always joke I always and say, yeah, <laughs> me too. I always joke and say that psychologytoday.com is like the dating app for therapists, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you got your little profile picture. <laughs> you filter according to what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's also uh, local agencies that offer walk-in 
counseling, such as family services, and mm-hmm. not all the different um, agencies within family services have walk-in, but that's maybe a starting point to see a professional and, and maybe get linked with something that mm-hmm. might be more long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of folks that don't know that they have employment. Um, yeah, the EAP, EAP programs. yes. Employee Assistance Program. Employee Assistance Program. Uh, and that's covered under your benefits, and you could be connected with a counselor by telephone, um, yourself, and potentially some of your immediate family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's typically your your employer would have access to uh, counseling services that they offer for people, their employees. Um, and usually I think it's like anywhere from three to five, depending on, on your employer and what they've arranged. Um, but those would be free sessions that, that you would be, they'd be covered, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Same things apply around confidentiality. I think the only, my only um, suggestion to people is if they choose that route, is to make sure that whomever it is that they start working with, that they're able to continue working with them once the three or the five sessions are complete. And it's many of them, it's like, I can see you for three, I can see you for five, and then we're done. And so if you're just kind of getting into the groove, because really like the first one or two sessions is about information gathering. You don't really like get into things necessarily, unless it's like crisis, you're kind of dealing with just in the moment stuff. And telephone therapy may not be for everyone. Yeah, as well. yeah, for sure. For sure. And for others, it could be their preferred method of speaking to someone. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're a really good point, right? Some people prefer the face-to-face or, you know, in person as opposed to just over the telephone, for sure. Um, But a really good resource, I think, for sure. I think um, I also always encourage people to be aware of or write down or have somewhere available to you a couple different crisis lines. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's a good way to access service as well. Or if in the moment after hours, Mm -hmm. um, overnight, when Mm -hmm. you don't have access to your regular support group, including your friends or family, or if you're in a particular moment of distress, those are really great free, confidential, 24-7 services that are Mm -hmm. available. Um, I'm based out of Toronto, so I know the ones there in terms of the Toronto Distress Center and the Gerstein Crisis Center um, as excellent resources. Um, or, you know, failing that if you're ever worried about your immediate um, well-being and safety in terms of risk to yourself or others, or if you're considering self-harm, um, then 911 is your way to go. And no mm-hmm. people try to use that as a last resort, and the police are working on their sensitivity and their response, but mobile mm-hmm. crisis teams are increasingly available to yes. people who are in urgent need. Yeah. 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 Right. Like don't hesitate. If you feel like things are spiraling out of control and you need the help, ER, get to your emergency department, call 911, whatever you need to do. Right. Um, just to make sure that you're safe and whoever it is that you're with is safe. Ideally, I think what I'm optimistic for in terms of the healthcare available in Ontario specifically is that no wrong door kind of policy in terms of access. So yeah. regardless where you knock, you have uh, you meet with a person who's able to try and connect you to the best mm-hmm. or most appropriate service, mm-hmm. and I hope that that is people's experience. And I hope that where it's not, we can raise it and address it in the moment. Because I feel as though if you're interested in seeking help, it should be our responsibility as healthcare professionals, therapists, social workers, yeah. to do our level best to connect you to the right service at the most appropriate time. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to have awareness of, of what the services are that are out there, at least at least point people in the right direction, right? There's nothing more frustrating than reaching out for help, making that call, finally like mustering up the courage to do so, and then being like, oh, okay, sorry, it's not us, not sure where you should turn, bye. It's like, not helpful. I think there's a lot of responsibility on us to provide people with no dead ends. I mm-hmm. feel like um, if you're gonna be handing out resources or talking about information, you better be sure and confident that you're connecting somebody to someone that's available and not a number that no longer is in service. Yeah, I've yes. heard about that experience and it's incredibly frustrating on the user's end and the care, or the care seeker mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of the continuity of their care, their confidence in the system and what that means for them yeah. the next time they're looking for help. Because um, if uh, they find a dead end when they meet with a service provider, they might be even for more reluctant to seek it out in the future. They, they become jaded. Yeah, mm-hmm. if, if that's been their experience mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Not always, but in, in some cases. Yeah, def- definitely makes me think twice about the next time I'm going to reach out, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'm going to become much more cynical about, eh, how can you really help me? Right? Is this worth my time? Mm-hmm. Ladies, any final thoughts about mental health? mental health stigma um, and trying to sort of lift that stigma um, and allow people to, yeah, just embrace who they are and um, function in that light of feeling whole and complete regardless of what struggles they might be faced with. I think conversations like this are really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like we could do more like you said we could talk about it a lot i feel as though when we normalize talk about mental health the way we talk about our physical health i feel like we're taking steps towards encouraging people to take care of both to not Mm -hmm. prioritize one over the other or be concerned about how um addressing or taking good care of your mental health or having mental health issues um should be something that's private or hidden yeah yeah. It's a very personal experience, and I would never tell anybody how to share it or how to live it, but I feel like it's our responsibility as providers and as consumers of the system as well to be more transparent so that people feel more comfortable sharing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. that promotes awareness and then the funding and the services trickles down from there. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a difficult time in terms of accessing supports but I feel as though there's room for creativity and collaboration across the system. So hopefully we can actually be available to the people when they do come forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the more people feel comfortable to seek support, um, it might help for the statistics in terms of what is the need and, and how many resources do we have to address this need. Mm-hmm. It, like Bex is saying, you know, the funding and the resources will come if, if there's a demonstrated need. So yeah. if we're able to have people talking and, and of course, mm-hmm. wherever and whenever they're comfortable, um, you know, it, and I think that we're heading in the right direction in terms of, you know, in some ways with the media. I, I know that it's, it's a mixed bag and... Um, Bell, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Bell, let's talk, right? It's yeah. like one of the biggest things. Um, and now I think with social media, I think that that is one of the quote unquote blessings or positives of being in this world where we've got access to the internet and we've got access to all means of connecting with people worldwide, right? And where people are now coming forward with their stories 
Yeah. Normal, yeah. Saying normalizing. Normalizing, normalizing and, and just talking. I think, I think that exactly that it starts with simple conversations like this. And that's, that's absolutely my hope with this podcast is that, you know, I'm able to have conversations like this that people turn in, tune into and feel, um, less isolated in what they're going through and, um, feel this sense of normalization and that it's okay. It's okay to reach out. It's okay, you know, that you might be feeling like things are a little squirrely and out of control because we all go through moments like that at one time or another. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to have you guys here that you've agreed to join me on this journey and um, be one of my very first episode releases. I'm hopeful that um, yeah, even if it just touches one person's life, right? And makes a difference. That's the goal. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, guys, we'll chat to you next time. You've been listening to Therapy Talks with Anya, and thanks so much for tuning in. If you love the show, feel free to subscribe, share it with a friend, and or leave a review. I'm a therapist who provides individual counseling to those struggling with anxiety, stress, relationship issues, or a general sense of overwhelm, amongst other things, because life can be tough. I also have a passion for working with those struggling with grief, particularly perinatal grief and infant loss. Really, it's just a fancy way of saying I'm dedicated to working with women and their partners who may be grieving a miscarriage, stillbirth, or pregnancy termination. Feel free to check out my website at soulfulbalance.ca or my Instagram account at soulful underscore balance to learn more about me and how I can help. Once there, you'll be able to sign up for my mailing list so that you can be the first to receive the latest updates, blog posts, and podcast episodes. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, may you be well. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us. I'm here today with Gabriella Carafa, social worker at North York General. She's a social worker like myself on the mother-baby unit, um, and so we have a very similar role in a lot of ways. Gabriella, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I'm wondering actually if we can start by having you explain to our listeners your background mm -hmm. as it relates to pregnancy, grief, and loss, and maybe even just a little bit about what you do here at the hospital. Sure. Um, is it all right if I start at the beginning of my career? Because the majority of my career so far has been working with uh, children and adults with disabilities and their families, a variety of disabilities, um, which there is grief work in that as well. Uh, so I feel like my experiences with grief and grief counseling did start from my earlier days as a social worker. But now currently I am a social worker, like you said, in the mother and baby units but I also co-facilitate a late loss group um, and work with uh, pregnant women as well, some who have experienced previous losses and are now in a subsequent pregnancy. Okay, okay. So you've been working in social work for quite a long time and absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. I think when you're working with children and parents or adults who are mm -hmm. working through some kind of a disability, I, absolutely, there's a huge grief component there, mm -hmm. and I can definitely understand how that would tail into the work that you do here with women and their partners. 
Um, have you been here at North York General on Mother Baby for a while? A, a year and a half at this point, yeah. Okay. Um, and I did actually also have uh, one of my social practicums in uh, a, a program in perinatal social work, uh, where that's where my passion working with so these cool. women had started from. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, essentially, you and I do very similar work mm-hmm. within the hospital setting. Yes. I think if, if your role here is like mine, we're called in to um, our labor delivery unit whenever there is a loss, um, whether it be um, planned termination or, um, yeah, an unforeseen loss. We jump in and sort of start in that moment of crisis to do the one-on-one individual counseling and support of the patient and her partner, and sometimes even the family, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, kind of intense work, but I I don't know about you, but I absolutely love it. Um, I feel quite comfortable in it, um, around the grief and and loss in itself. Um, The difference is you have this amazing opportunity to do this group work with women who have experienced some form of loss. And um, maybe before we jump into all of that, I'm, I'm wondering if you could share with us what your most sort of challenging, the most challenging part of your role mm-hmm. in supporting women and their partners through their grief would be. And maybe that's even hard to articulate, but if you had to I, give a stab at it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the most challenging part of my role in that area is around how society responds to perinatal loss, um, how it's not recognized. And, you know, we use the term disenfranchised grief um, when we're talking about grief that people experience when they have a loss that is not openly acknowledged or talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's not something that publicly people feel like they're able to mourn and grieve in a, in a mm-hmm. typical traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that makes my job really challenging because it may take a lot for even parents to come and see me about a loss because they feel like you know they should be over it by now or that they have nobody to talk to or that they shouldn't be feeling what they're feeling. So even getting them in the door to talk mm-hmm. to someone. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how there's this this sense of guilt, right? It's almost like it's almost like they feel guilty for like you say, feeling as sad as they do. Yeah. Definitely. And there's a, there's a lot of um, guilt around the sadness and guilt around uh, whatever how it happens mm-hmm. um, and the fact that you know two individuals if they're in a coupled relationship, they may not be grieving or coping the same way with mm-hmm. the loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're dealing with individuals who have experienced a perinatal loss, they also have their own families that they're navigating, their own friendships groups, and bringing that to therapy about how everybody else is responding. Yes. And even beyond that, how the person where, who does their nails is responding, or their hairdresser, or yeah. going back to doctors after a loss and going back to other specialists where they feel like they have to keep explaining it or it's being completely ignored altogether. So yes. I think that that is really challenging in my role. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's multi-layered, right? There's this component of, on the one hand, society at large 
doesn't recognize it as a loss and doesn't understand the grief behind it Mm -hmm. and sort of brushes it off and that's where you get a lot of these insensitive comments right the the whole oh at least you know you can get pregnant Mm -hmm. or well you just try again you know just have another baby or you're so young yeah oh man and I I I like to believe that people are Mm well-intentioned and it comes from a good place it's just really hurtful and painful in that moment Mm -hmm. I think for that woman right yeah and I think in those conversations people are bringing in their own beliefs and their own anxieties yes right yeah which I'm not saying we need to excuse people for saying certain things if they're hurting your feelings but a lot of that is their own anxiety oh it wasn't meant to be or everything Mm -hmm. happens for a reason maybe Mm -hmm. something was wrong Mm -hmm. um quote unquote I'm using air quotes here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so I, I think it's really, it, it is multi-layered. And it's not just, okay, it's just going to be my family that's going to say things like that. It's mm-hmm. a lot of times everywhere mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. mother goes. Mm-hmm. She's being confronted with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I again, I think, and I kind of, we'll talk about this a little later on, just about the isolation in this grief, mm-hmm. right? And so often it, it's something that... Um, maybe not a lot of people know about as yet. Maybe the pregnancy hadn't been made public. It wasn't public knowledge. And then, so to go back and and talk to people about what's happened or talk to them about how you're feeling or what you're going through kind of adds to that difficulty, right? Makes it that much more challenging to get those women through your door, right? To actually talk to them. And there's a lot of messages we get, social messages, like, don't tell anyone before three months. Yes. It's a message that a lot of women hear. Um, and so you're right. When they experience a loss during those three months, um, they may not have told their support circle about their pregnancy. And they may not tell them about their loss either. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be quite isolating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then they're struggling through it alone, right? Mm-hmm. And to go back to your point about how particularly if they're in a coupled relationship, right? Let's just assume at this point, Mm male-female, often males grieve very differently about grief in general, but particularly this kind of a loss, right? Um, And that that just kind of adds to the layer of complexity for for these women. Absolutely. Um, Maybe the next best thing to talk about would be sort of that distinction between miscarriage and pregnancy loss, or oftentimes you hear the term perinatal loss. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe just for the sake of our listeners, we can distinguish between that. Um, And so what's your understanding of what constitutes a miscarriage? Yeah, so medically, my understanding is uh, if you lose uh, your baby before... 19 weeks and before, that's a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything beyond 20 weeks is considered a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some technicalities about weight in there as well. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think just for our purposes of our conversation, we'll go with that, definitely that distinction, you know, um, prior to 20 weeks would be miscarriage. After 20 weeks, um, we'd be talking more around the, the pregnancy loss stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, but you made, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you speak, you made a, a point about um, even prior to 19 weeks, you referred to the pregnancy as a baby. Yes. And I feel like that's a really important mm-hmm. point 
because I don't know about you, but what I've noticed in working with women and their partners who have suffered a loss is oftentimes from the moment of them finding out that they're pregnant, right? Whether they pee on that stick or get the blood test or whatever, oftentimes the women that I'm seeing have this strong connection to their baby at the point of them discovering that they're pregnant, right? And I call it you're already mothering. Yeah. Differently, mm-hmm. you know, you may stop participating in some activities or add activities to your life. Um, things start to shift, mm-hmm. cutting down your caffeine intake, mm-hmm. those things. And so, you know, we talk about how women are mothering quite early on. Mm-hmm. And that's not for everyone, but just, you know, mm-hmm. that's something that comes up a lot. Like, wondering if they have a right to grieve. Mm-hmm. Am I a mother? Mm-hmm. And asking themselves that question. And so we do a lot of unpacking what mothering means to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what can you do when you're pregnant? Well, you can eat a different way. You, can, mm-hmm. you know, do all these different things. Um, and and how these little bits involve mothering. Mm-hmm. And what that might look like. It's interesting because I feel like it's that, that component of mothering that happens during a pregnancy like you said very early on most often that's when it starts I feel like it's that's part of what links to that feeling of guilt right it's often a question I hear is well what did I do wrong what could I have done differently right and that that sense of blame if I had only not eaten that cheese right like picked up this thing yeah yeah if I had stopped working out and and so it's so difficult to I think work through some of that with moms and their partners um, to help them understand that they're not at fault for what's happened. Right. You know. Yeah, and and that's so hard to sit with for mm-hmm. them. Um, we want to be able, everyone, want to be able to control and understand why things are happening and yes. have happened. It's like our instinct. Yeah. Because if we can control it, then somehow in our mind we can prevent it. Yeah. Prevented from happening again, prevented from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this work, I don't know what you found, even after autopsies are completed, uh, placenta examinations are completed, they usually don't find mm-hmm. uh, a medical mm-hmm. reason. Sometimes they do, but majority of the time they don't. Mm-hmm. And that is something that takes a while uh, to work through. And I always say, like, you might come back to feeling guilty. You know, you might be like, finally be like, okay, I, you know, I'm feeling, I realize now there was nothing I could have done, mm-hmm. right? And then those feelings of guilt and worry and anxiety may come back if that individual decides to have a subsequent pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then they're either, they either felt like they did everything right the first time and, you know, quote unquote, right the first time yeah. um, when they were pregnant and they experienced the loss. And now they're either going to do the same thing again or like switch it up. Mm-hmm. And you can see those old anxieties, like, oh, well, mm-hmm. what do I do this time if I did everything right last time? Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. what to change, and mm-hmm. what if this happens again? Mm-hmm. I think that that's also diff- a difficult part of my job that I find, that I can't give people guarantees. I know, I don't right? Find that yeah, too. absolutely. Absolutely. I, I Again, I think you're really fortunate in the hospital setting to be able to have this follow-up with moms, mm-hmm. right? Because often... Often you'll see mums come through with their first, second, sometimes even third. Um, but because you have the opportunity to do this loss group, 
you see them in relation to that, but you also have an opportunity to follow up with any potential subsequent pregnancy. And the, the, the amount of anxiety is so normal mm-hmm. um, and common, but you're absolutely right. It, it takes work to sort of break through it all and, yeah. and get to a place where they feel secure enough, but you're right, it, there's no guarantee to any of it. I mean, how often don't we see full-term pregnancies right and everything was perfect through the pregnancy and for whatever Mm -hmm. reason at 39 or 40 weeks there's no fetal heartbeat right and I mean it's a devastating absolutely devastating but it happens and there's yeah until that baby is born and there and breathing you know there's no guarantee and sometimes I get like as I mentioned I work with pregnant women and sometimes it's not even that the referral came because of a subsequent pregnancy after a loss. Mm-hmm. It could just be like, oh, she's experienced a lot of anxiety during this pregnancy or low mood. And then once they're in yes. here, you know, we're in a counseling session and I notice this is their fourth pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I ask them about how, is, you know, fourth pregnancy and, and it's, you know, they don't have any children at home. Yeah. You know, and I ask them how, tell me about those losses. A mm-hmm. lot of times they're shocked. That were even I even brought it up, mm-hmm. and I can even recognize that, you know, this is your fourth pregnancy. Like I, let's talk about the mm-hmm. impact that's had on you. We'll go through each lot. Mm-hmm. When did it happen? What was it like? Mm-hmm. When did you get pregnant again? What was that like? Mm-hmm. And then some of them, you know, even with infertility, uh, oh, such a big, yeah. That's another added layer. Yep. Going through all of that mm-hmm. and experiencing a loss and the loss of not being able to get pregnant in the way that they had planned in the way that you know okay yeah you find a partner you get pregnant and you know that doesn't always happen Mm -hmm. and so there's a grief around the difficulties around becoming pregnant Mm -hmm. and then they experience a loss and then trying to get pregnant again yeah and just even I think I think even just the process of like IVF let's Mm -hmm. say right you know it's really I think quite invasive and intense and like you say, the, the grief around not being able to conceive, quote unquote, naturally, right. but then also the grief around IVF isn't always successful. Yeah. And sometimes you need to go through that process of transfer multiple times. And I feel like in the infertility world, from the clinic perspective, it's very medical, right? And it's very much a cluster of cells or a chemical pregnancy or you know they give some kind of medical term to it but the women that live through this again oftentimes from the point of finding out they're pregnant connect with that as their baby and the implications for that grief and loss emotionally is huge I, I'm wondering if we can chat a little bit about, you mentioned the late loss support group, and I know I've been sort of um, touching base on it as well a little, referring to it. But for the sake of our listeners, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the late loss support group that you run here, what that's like, um, what's all entailed in that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I co-facilitate that with this colleague of mine mm-hmm. who's a psychiatrist um, and the, it is only, group only for women mm-hmm. and we accept individuals that have had a late pregnancy loss which we define as a loss after 20 weeks and includes a stillbirth or loss due to incompatibility with life. 
Right. So that means genetic terminations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we run this group weekly. It's an open group. So what that means is, you know, people can come and go as they please to the group. Uh, there's no set curriculum uh, to the group. We do cover themes uh, that sort of circle through and come up, um, but we don't have like a set curriculum. So mm-hmm. we check in with uh, the women. They're able to share their experiences of their loss, uh, meet other women in similar situations. Um, and it's really about staying present and engaging with that pain, those painful details of the loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes you'll find if someone's new to the group, they may give like a, a really superficial, quick story of their loss. And then as the weeks go by, we'll get more and more details of what happened right. that loss and, and with that experience And it's really a space where, yes, we, you know, the psychiatrist and I were clinicians uh, and were trained uh, to facilitate groups and have counseling skills, but they're not, their feelings are not only validated by us, they're validated by the other women in the group. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of the times, they, 99.99% of the benefit they get is hearing each other's stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we help guide conversations, maybe ask probing questions around, you know, wanting them maybe if they can't explain further or getting them to think about something in a different way. Mm-hmm. But the sharing of the stories mm-hmm. um, and getting support from each other where there's no judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, today I ran the group and I had told them I'm going to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's okay if I just yeah, tell you. 100%. Yeah, we, we were, I was asking them doing this podcast and I want to know what are some of the things you think um, people listening should know about mm-hmm. and they you know a couple things came up just like you know when people say I can't remember my life without kids mm-hmm. you know people say that all the time all the time I don't know what I was doing yeah. my life had no meaning yeah. I just can't remember my life before children Yeah. and it's always like this before and after children Yeah. and they say you know it's the same for us there's before the loss, when I thought I understood everything about the world and where my life was going, and I had this picture in my mind, and then after. Mm-hmm. And they said, you're never the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know... So powerful, yeah, isn't it? It, 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 it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you are never the same again. Yeah. There's no going back to before. Yeah. And some, you know... Some of the moms in our group, and I will use the words women and moms interchangeably, we identify yeah. all of them as moms. Yeah. And so some of the moms in our group will, will have multiple causes. Mm-hmm. Some miscarriage, some stillbirth, some this was their first pregnancy and their first sober. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, just being able to acknowledge that just because you don't have live children doesn't mean that your life is not forever changed like it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I often, I often will say too to some of the moms that I work with, and and depending on, you have to sort of read where they're at, right? But I will often say to uh, many of the moms that I work with, you know, the fact that your baby was not for this world and and unfortunately was unable to take a breath in this world, does not mean that you're not a mother. 
you will forever be a mom for having carried this child no matter how short that duration may have been yeah. right and and I think you're right it's a defining moment for many women mm-hmm. that this is not an insignificant event this is an event that has changed my life and has impacted them in a way that I think unless you've gone through it it's difficult to understand mm-hmm. you know another thing we talked about too that they wanted me to share was this idea when we talk about grief the other side of grief get through it yes. coming out a better person coming out on the other side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. coming out stronger yeah, for having stronger. had to go through it yeah which of course having you know a perinatal loss brings you different perspectives mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. in your life yeah. that other people don't have who haven't experienced it um but this idea that like you'll just get past it why aren't you past it and, and society not understanding that people can still be triggered by other people's pregnancies yeah that's a huge one going to kids birthday parties mm-hmm. um and feeling that trigger mm-hmm. uh, and people to me it's about jealousy mm-hmm. or bitterness or wishing bad yeah. on somebody else yeah. and we talk about in the group it is not about any of those things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It's not about lack of loving for that person. It's it's about that process of grief. And it's okay to not be jumping up and down when you find out your friend's pregnant after you've lost mm-hmm. your baby at 40 mm-hmm. weeks. Mm-hmm. And know? it doesn't mean you love them or care about them any less. No, yeah. No. But that that's part of the process of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And how we, we measure it, like how well people are doing. Oh, they went back to work. They must be doing Mm-hmm. It's you know? a really good point. They came to the baby shower. They looked happy. Look how yeah. happy they look. They must be doing better. Yeah. And it's not about, I always say, like, it's not about um, the moving forward and backwards of grief, but it's like a left and right dance. And that it's okay to be having moments of joy and experiencing a really good day. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you don't love your baby because mm-hmm. there's the other side of it. Like, I laughed today. There's a lot of guilt. Like, why am I even happy? Yeah. My baby is yeah. dead. That's a big thing, right? So there's all these, like, society gives us really big messages mm-hmm. if we're really thinking about it. It's like, mm-hmm. how could you be so happy your baby is dead? And then why are you so unhappy you don't want to come to my baby shower? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, what are people supposed to do? So in a way, I feel very privileged that I get to hear, you know, these experiences and these stories and also recognize what are we telling people about mm-hmm. grief? Mm-hmm. Even if it's not with our word, but our actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the cards, I was reading some cards at Hallmark. Mm-hmm. None of them are appropriate for yeah. that kind of situation. So true, right? So true. It's just yeah. things to think about. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you you make a really good point about the group work, right? Because the group work there's validation for many of these women in the sense that they're hearing other people go through very similar situations and makes them feel less alone right and and I love that it's a safe space for them to talk about it you know and I I think that that's exactly what I try to do in my office in my private practice as well is just create a safe space Mm -hmm. for women and their partners to be able to talk about their loss and how they're feeling and to acknowledge that it's okay to be feeling what they're feeling, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
Yeah. I know our group here at Director General is uh, just for women. Mm-hmm. We also usually recommend like going to pregnancy and infant loss network groups of the pale groups because yes. you can bring your partner to that. Like it's not an either or. Yeah. A lot of the moms in our group are having one to one counseling. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, you know, we also recommend if, if they're if they need that one on one time. Yeah. So important and important to know that just because you reach out to do either group work or one-on-one group, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're broken, you know, like you're reaching out to get support to go through something that's really, really difficult and painful and it's okay to ask for help, you know. Um, you know, I as we've been chatting, I've been thinking a little bit about... Um, some of the situations that we run across in the hospital and we often have this sort of unanticipated loss right but then there's also this component where genetic testing has been done and families are put in a position moms and their partners are put in a position where they have to make a really difficult decision about whether or not they carry this pregnancy to term this potentially you know um yeah, potentially this child is not going to be able to survive beyond X amount of time or their life would be really, really challenging or, you know, the loss could happen at any point within the pregnancy. Such a tough spot to be in to have to decide whether or not they're going to terminate this pregnancy. And I don't know about your experience, but I wonder if you've noticed any difference in the grief process for women who opt for genetic termination and do these women tend to come to group so I'm hesitant to say differences mm-hmm. um, I believe that like every woman who experiences a perinatal loss is unique yep. and although there may be similarities we should not make assumptions on how they should or might be grieving um, but with that being said I think it is important to discuss more of the shame and stigma that might be a little bit more prevalent when we're talking mm-hmm. about genetic termination mm-hmm. um, culturally as well comes into it there's certain views about yeah. terminating a pregnancy um, and certain views about you know what a child with special needs might bring or what this might mean for the family and so all of these things kind of come together mm-hmm. um, and so some of the time you know these individuals may even hide the fact that they've had a genetic termination Sometimes they tell people that they've experienced a loss, like mm-hmm. either depending on the whether they miscarriage or a stillbirth. Um, they're not saying that they had a genetic termination, which creates isolation because mm-hmm. they never get to unpack what Absolutely. it was like when you got that test result back mm-hmm. and what they told you about what kind of life or what to expect from that baby mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. what impact that might have on you. And there's this belief in society, well, you decided to do this. Right, yeah. And I think a lot of the moms might be a, a little nervous coming to a group where they know that they're not all genetic terminations. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, with that being said, we've had individuals with genetic terminations attend the group. And the group is so supportive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they understand where that person was coming from. And, yes, that individual might be very nervous to share, like, yes, I had a genetic termination, but the group itself, from my experience, has been welcomed them with open arms, and mm-hmm. they were able to discuss how that impacted them. 
what that day was like mm -hmm. and how many days they had to make these decisions and what it would look like and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um, what the burial might have looked like or any kind of like uh, memorial services and so they're still so able difficult. to yeah and it, it is really difficult um, especially when you're with other moms who have experienced like a stillbirth mm -hmm. where they might feel like am I being judged yeah. now yeah. because maybe these mothers would have made different decisions mm -hmm. we also talk about deciding that you are mothering you're making a decision based on the information that you have mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like those women are even more isolated mm -hmm. and that they you know they should be reaching out because there is support out there that you know mm -hmm. judgment free where they can feel like they are listened to and they're able to grieve because mm -hmm. it's sort of like why are you grieving when another message like mm -hmm. this is for the best you made a decision it's yeah. fine yeah where it's like no no it's still your baby yeah and that was most challenging and it's not what you ever hoped for ever had to make yeah. yeah and it's not what anyone plans yeah um and with that there's like multiple moments of grief right so finding out there's an issue and then diagnosis or suspected diagnosis whatever it may be mm -hmm. and then making that decision and then what comes after that mm -hmm. and then you know on and on and on mm -hmm. um, and so it's just like not feeling the baby move coming mm -hmm. into the hospital being told the baby has no heartbeat deciding when you know you'll be induced like these are all moments yeah. where they need to make these decisions yeah um and that's really can be quite traumatizing absolutely absolutely i i just think you made such a, a beautiful point right at the very outset to this this brief point in conversation um about not making assumptions about all grief being the same right and not making assumptions about uh, what it's like for one air quotes here versus the other right um and such a, a crucial point to carry with you, even as, as you know, just people within the community, right? Um, in terms of, yeah, just what we, the messages we give and how we support people who have experienced a loss. Like, you know, if, if you're listening right now and you're like a family or a member or a friend of someone who's experienced a perinatal loss, like reaching out mm -hmm. to them is so important like mm -hmm. you don't have to say there's nothing magical you're gonna say anyway yeah that's gonna you know fix what happened or change what happened yeah but even saying thinking about you yeah here if you want to talk like these are simple things you can say yeah to someone because it can be so hard for family members and friends to even know what they say and they want to say something that's going to make that person feel better but if you take that pressure off yourself yes and you think about I just want to let them know that I'm thinking about them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I want to reach out to them. And not assuming that, you know, they don't want to come to your baby shower. And not mm -hmm. assuming that they don't want to hear that you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. but, but being genuine, I mean, like, I want to tell you something. Mm -hmm. I want you at this baby shower. I'm inviting you. I would love it if you'd be there. But I totally understand if you're not able to make it. Mm -hmm. Or that day you can't it's not a good day and you, you can't make it there or you need to leave early mm -hmm. but I want to let you know I would love for you to be there mm -hmm. so, it's a know, good point right genuine. yeah it's a good point about 
you know, I think people often fret about, well, what am I going to say? Or what, what should I do? I don't want to say or do the wrong thing. And, and then sometimes that, that fear can immobilize people, right? And, and what they do is nothing. And I feel like something is better than nothing. So even if all you do, like you said, is reach out and say, hey, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about you. I'm here. Let me know if you need anything. Mm-hmm. That goes so far in terms of just opening the door and letting that that mm-hmm. individual know that you're there. And some of the more most memorable things that I've heard that others have done for uh, the moms that I've worked with have been like to even acknowledge like after some time has passed and it Mother's Day hits. Like, yeah. Thinking about you this Mother's Day, I bet you're really missing whatever the baby's name is. Like, yeah. If you know they name the baby use the baby's name yeah acknowledge when holidays pass that may be challenging anniversaries yeah Yeah. like people have gotten ornaments from their friends that have like their baby's name on it Mm -hmm. because it still would have been for example their first christmas Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that's what you celebrate so it's Mm -hmm. those little moments are so important Mm -hmm. um and i i think that that the acknowledgement of yeah, the loss, right? Exactly. It, it gives voice to it. And, and people, you know, when people are like, oh, like, someone's so had a baby, look at this picture. Yeah. Look at this stuff. Like, acknowledging when you're visiting with that person, like, you know, oh, were any pictures taken? Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people are really not comfortable looking at mm-hmm. in, in those kinds of photos, but it's their baby, right? Mm-hmm. And they want it, mm-hmm. and they may not want to share it, but they may want to share it. Mm-hmm. So say, like, would you like to show me? Mm-hmm. Some photos. Do you want to show me what they gave you at the hospital, or mm-hmm. is there something you know in your house right now that really makes you think of your baby? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and it sounds so like, but you would do it if they didn't experience those loss. You would say, "Show me that photo. Let's yep. see their nursery. Let's, oh my gosh, like this is such a great swing." Yeah. Like, you yeah. would have these conversations about things, but then as soon as someone has a loss, it all stops, mm-hmm. and nobody knows what to say. Mm-hmm. Do I bring it up? I don't want to upset them. They seem like they're having a good day. When then you don't bring it up and they feel like you've forgotten about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So complicated. It's just very complicated. Yeah, but I think the biggest thing, like you say, I think the biggest thing is going off of, whether it's your friend or family member, going off their cues, right? Yeah, and course. letting them take the lead, but you starting that conversation yeah. by saying, hey, I'm here. Let me know if there's anything you need. Yeah. Right? That's a... Uh, a big thing and what might be okay one day they may not want to have that same kind of conversation the next time and being mm-hmm. okay with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right like, yes yeah, exactly. they may have gone to your other friend's baby shower but maybe that day they woke up and they were just not able to do it yeah yeah you know it's and that whole concept of grief comes in waves exactly. right yeah one day and the, and i love how you put it earlier that analogy of it's a dance a left to right yeah. right it's um i'm sure i read that somewhere yeah <laughs> No, just take, take it. Take it's fine. <laughs> these these women that you work with, you know, when I just think about, um, when I think about things like, okay, had this pregnancy not been a loss and it had been a successful delivery, healthy baby, um, there are women who would be at risk of postpartum depression, mm-hmm. and because of the loss and the situation that that sort of creates um do you find that there are women that you work with who are either at higher risk of postpartum depression or who experience postpartum depression because i think oftentimes 
that's not something that a lot of people really think about because again there's well there's no baby so yeah no absolutely and we we hear that a lot like nobody will really talk about postpartum depression and anxiety uh, with Mm -hmm. someone who's experienced a loss because this idea is always like oh like there's already a lot of misconceptions about postpartum depression anxiety generally yeah so then when you add it to this situation um, people are not thinking about it and I I believe whether you have other risk factors or not having a loss is a risk factor yes because you are isolated you don't have support um, and you know your mood is so low Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. and you are grieving but there is you know that difference between just because you're sad doesn't mean you're depressed yeah right and that's why it's really good to reach out to people Mm -hmm. so whether friends family but also professionally Mm -hmm. Uh, like you and I work at separate hospitals there's social workers in hospitals figuring out if you can even touch base with them reaching Mm -hmm. out to pay all going to your family doctor if you have a good relationship with them uh, just to talk about how you're feeling Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. a lot of times I think I'm sad you you are sad Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and we talked about earlier like finding strength and what happened you're never gonna it's not like oh I'm so glad that I never I got fired from that job because now I have this like amazing job mm. huh I'm so much mm-hmm. happier now mm-hmm. it's not the, we were talking about that today it's not that kind of experience yeah. where you look back and you're like I'm super glad yeah. that, that happened yeah, yeah. it taught me a lot yeah it will always be a sad moment mm. in someone's life um, and and it carries through the rest of their lives they're carrying that with them mm-hmm. and although it may not be as acute as it is when it's initially happening it definitely still comes in waves mm-hmm. and sometimes delivering a subsequent child and having that baby be born alive even that can be triggering yeah, yeah. right and those attachment issues so then they're also at high risk of having postpartum depression or anxiety so mm-hmm. You know, and we definitely need to talk about that as well more often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Being more vocal about it and, and asking women, right? Like, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Right? Not just assuming that, you know, well, they look like they're doing okay, so I'm not going to bring it up. Well, no. I mean, and we sometimes all. it's hard. Like, how are you doing? Like, even too, like, oh, how are, yeah. How are you doing is even one of those questions where, well, you know, it, it can be even taken the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think I'm doing? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah. Oh, we hear that a lot. Uh, I don't know. That's it, a really good point, yes, right? But, like, but it, again, it, it so. It comes down to even me. I'll ask people, how are you doing? Yeah. I've been thinking, how's it going? Yeah. Like, and I know, of course, it's not going great. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, in a variety of contexts, that's sort of what falls out of our mouth. But of course, you can ask follow up questions to that. Like, And, and I feel like know? that's a prime example of you know what, I mean, you and I, we're professionals, and, and we still, like, hey, how you doing, right, how are things going, and I, I think it just reiterates that there's not really the right thing to say, or this mm-hmm. magical phrase, you know, that's going to make it all okay, mm-hmm. but it is about starting the dialogue, and it making is. sure that it is, you know, acknowledged, and that you're giving space, you're mm-hmm. giving space to actually talk about what's happened for them. And I think you bring up a good point, like, as clinicians, too, like, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as well to say the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I can think of, you know, since I've started in this particular work, like, 
sometimes you leave a room and you're like, oh, did I say, why did I say it like that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and it's important for self-reflection. But it's true, like, I used to say, sorry for your loss. But then someone told me not to say that, but that might be really comforting to other people. So it's about really, like you mentioned earlier, like reading that individual where mm-hmm. they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, now I usually say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry we have to meet under these circumstances. Yeah, yeah. And, cause, you know, it's not how you envisioned. You probably would have never even met me. Yeah, I know, right? right? And, I know. And, you know, and those pieces and having those variety of experiences, like meeting someone in a crisis. Some people really want to talk about how they're feeling and what's happening in that moment and mm-hmm. want to talk about planning. And some people don't want to talk about anything at mm-hmm. that time. Yeah. And being okay with that. Sometimes it's just in that, especially in that moment, right? It's just too much of a shock, and they're already processing a lot. And I think that that kind of dovetails into our last point here, just about the resources in the community and why it's so important. Because, again, maybe, maybe you are a woman who, in the moment, it all just seemed like life was happening around you. And it was all a blur. You were in shock. And now maybe a week or two or a month or two or who knows, time has passed. And you're in a place where you need to talk about it and you need to process it. And like you said, you know, not being afraid to reach out to the people, the professionals around you, you know, the groups um, that you're running here, amazing, the Pale Network through Sunnybrook, um, but also individual counselors, you know, doing the one-on-one work. If you're in, if you're outside of, of downtown Toronto, right? Well, then where do you go? There are other counselors available to talk to to work through some of this um and to just give yourself space to to grieve mm-hmm. you know and and get to a place where yeah it just feels as okay as it can you know was there anything else that you could think of in terms of um resources that you'd inform patients of in terms of support for what they're going through well, bereaved families yeah. materials, another one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I talk, you know, a lot of even about social media. There's benefits in, of social media, and a lot of that is connecting with other people. Maybe it's too hard to get out of your house and go to yeah. a group in the beginning. Yep. You know, or go and find out which counselor is going to be the counselor that you want to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That can be really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But like even there's so many groups on Facebook and and yeah. there's a lot of people trying more and more to talk about it. Yes, Instagram, you yeah. see it everywhere. Yeah, uh, using special hashtag, and you'll see what comes up yeah. um, regarding perinatal loss, and and I think that's a good way to connect with people, mm-hmm. um, even initially if you're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't promise all everything anybody will say will be helpful, but at least you have some sort of connection you can talk with other people who experience a similar situation I think that's the biggest point right is is don't feel like you need to be any more isolated in this than you already are reach out there are people there to help there are support networks that are available and that that sometimes can make all the difference Gabrielle, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today, and I'm, I'm so grateful to know about the group that you're running here at, at North York General. Um, I know certainly from my perspective in terms of the work that I do within the hospital crisis moments, 
um, this is a group that I definitely refer people to because I, I see the value in it. I think it's so important. So thank you for all of your hard work and support of thank patients and their families. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to episode four of Therapy Talks. Pregnancy. It can be one of the most exciting times in a woman's life. I've been fortunate enough to have countless women, both in my personal and professional life, share with me the excitement of their pregnancy. I mean, you're bringing a life, a tiny little human into this world. It's truly a miracle to me. Pregnancy is often a time of anxious anticipation, filled with hopes and dreams, many of which begin taking shape the moment pregnancy is confirmed. We generally expect things to follow a certain course throughout pregnancy. Yes, sure, we know that there are risks, particularly as this relates to the first trimester and the whole laboring and birthing part of things, but we so often seem to forget that things can happen at any point throughout a pregnancy. Did you know that one in four women will experience a miscarriage or pregnancy loss? One in four. Think about that stat for a minute. That means if you're a woman and you're listening, you have a 25% chance of suffering some form of pregnancy loss. I don't know about you, but that's staggering to me. So what happens when things go wrong? What happens when things go terribly wrong? In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Gabriella Carafa. She's a social worker who, like myself, works in a hospital setting supporting women and their partners who have suffered either a miscarriage, termination, or whose baby was born still. She also co-facilitates a support group at North York General Hospital for women who have suffered a late pregnancy loss. Join me as Gabriella and I delve deep into the topic of pregnancy loss, the emotional aftermath and how we can all work to support these women and their partners through their grief. If you or someone you know has suffered a pregnancy loss and are having a difficult time processing things or managing your grief, please know that you don't need to carry that alone. There is help available, so please don't hesitate to reach out and ask. Thank you all so much for taking the time to tune in. And just a reminder, please press pause and take the time to leave a review. This is a huge help to us as we continue to produce this show, put in tons of time and energy into providing you with the best guests, relevant topics, and information you find most helpful. All right, take a deep cleansing breath. Now let's get started. <laughs> 